Afternoon. Welcome to week number four of the fall winter session uh, where we are talking about in Sunday school this, this particular quarter plus um, the book of Acts, witnessing to the world. Uh, today we're going to be in the third chapter uh, of Acts and we'll be talking about uh, a miracle of healing. Uh, as you will recall, we left off last week in chapter two with the Holy Spirit just having been uh, come and had and the, uh, been received by the apostles there at the temple uh, while they were there for, for prayers. And uh, immediately thereafter, uh, they began to speak in tongues, known tongues. And of course, they were also doing some other kinds of, of miraculous things, um, much of which is not specifically talked about in Scripture. But the, the Scripture does uh, give us the idea that uh, they were doing and, and um, at least the manifestations of the Holy Spirit were being done by all the apostles that were gathered there. So just before we get started, let me open with prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you again for your, uh, your grace and your mercy that brings us here, uh, allows us to do this. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, uh, also which allows us to do this. Uh, so, Father, we ask that uh, today as we gather and as we look to your word and especially this word in Acts that uh, as, as you, through the power of the Spirit, uh, and it was empowering those apostles to do what uh, uh, they were supposed to do or had been ordained to do, had been trained to do by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to go forth and be witnesses to, for him and to him, uh, in, both in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so as we do that, Lord, we ask that your blessing be upon us, uh, that our words might be true and that uh, uh, we would be in accordance with what you would have us to say this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the third chapter. Witnesses to the world, miracle in the temple. Uh, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, of course, of, of Acts 3. Uh, the, the 26 verses there. Let me read the first 11 and then we'll talk about them briefly and then we'll move on. This is the third chapter of Acts. This, this follows very closely behind what had happened the day, the day before. Uh, this is another day. Uh, the Holy Spirit had come. Uh, there had been manifestations of the Holy Spirit there by the apostles. Then that day ended. They go back to the upper room or to the house as they, they were referring to it. And they uh, spent the night there. I am sure that there was a tremendous amount of excitement there as they relayed to all the other people who were gathered there, members of family and friends and other believers. Uh, and, and they relived the activities of that day and talked about what the days to come might hold for them. Now Luke talks about, and, and he, he follows up in the next day, uh, talking about what uh, God has done with regard to uh, following along with the Holy Spirit is going to give a specific example of what took place the following day and the ramifications of that or, or what are the blessings that came out of that. Again, third chapter, first verse. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. 
And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew what it was, knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch in which is called Solomon's Great, Solomon's Portico actually, but, and they were greatly amazed. All right, so here we have the, the, the context of what's going to go on in this, this particular day. It starts off by, by Peter and John uh, ambling from the, from the house that they were staying in, the upper room, ambling from there over to the temple. I don't know how long a walk it was, but it, I'm sure that they, they passed the time by walking together and talking about what the day, the day might hold. As they approached the temple, they approached what's, what is called in Scripture here the beautiful gate. Now, the beautiful gate is, is uh, a name that was given to several different gates within the temple, uh, some of which have been sort of eliminated simply because of the context of what was happening. This, is a, this was a man who was about 40 years old who had been lame since he was, he was born. It was a congenital birth defect where he had no ability to walk. His legs were probably, we, we, you may have seen someone like that at some point in time in your life, but it was a man whose legs had been withered from birth since uh, he had never been able to use them. He developed, he had no muscles in them, and so I'm sure that they were very withered and, and uh, probably tucked away in some way so that, that the public would not see them. But anyway, he had been, uh, for his entire life, uh, his parents had been bringing him to the temple each day and setting him by the beautiful gate so that he could beg from the passerbyers or for those who were coming to temple for prayer. There is a, there is a, uh, a word, tzedakah, which is a Hebrew word, which means bless, just, justified or, or righteousness. And this word is, is a word that uh, pertains to all worshipers who come to the temple and in some way to make their prayers more effective and to make their prayers uh, more favorably uh, considered by God. Uh, they entertain this thing called sadaka, meaning that if they did something that was, was uh, uh, to help someone or to give alms to the poor or in some way help somebody else, that their prayers would, 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 look at, would manifest in a sense of righteousness that they would have before God for having done that. So most all of people who came gave something. Not many people who would come to the temple to, to, to lay their prayers before the throne of God would come and ignore someone who was sitting by the gate. So I'm sure it was a, not only for the man, but also for his family. It was a source of, a steady source of income for them. And especially during this holiday period when there were so many people coming to the temple. But here he was sitting by the gate, called Beautiful, and waiting for people to come by. Uh, and as you know, and I, I'm sure you've experienced it yourself in some, t in some place and some time, where if you're going to give something to somebody, normally you don't stop and look them in the eye and, and try to make eye contact or perhaps start a conversation. 
uh, you, you put something in the tin can or the cigar box or whatever else it might be that's there that you may drop some money in it and you, and you just keep walking. Uh, and that's what most people did. But as you can tell by the scripture here, when, when Peter and John came up to the man, uh, of course, they were expected and, and they knew they were going to be expected to give something. And so the man sort of uh, was there and as they came by, uh, of course, they, they probably could see in his eyes that he was prepared for them to, to give them something. But as Peter says in, in verse 6, he said, uh, a silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I, I'm sure that the man at the time probably think, oh, you know, I, I, I would rather have a few denarii uh, uh, or something. And, but uh, anyway, Peter reaches down and, and, and John too reaches down to help him stand up. And immediately he began to, uh, to get strength in his legs and his ankles and his feet and, and so forth. Now I want to go back briefly to talk about the three gates because I don't want to leave that without talking about which of the gates that they were at. Uh, the, the, two, the three gates that are most often mentioned in commentary, commentaries are, are one uh, called uh, Nicanor. And while it was called the beautiful gate, because it was a beautiful gate, but it was not located in a place which would have made it convenient for someone who was bringing a crippled person, especially a grown man, even though he might have withered legs, but to carry a grown man inside and maneuver through and get up to the uh, up a set of stone stairs or steps and so forth to get to the Nicanor Gate uh, would have been more than, than most people would have been able to, to, to manage uh, by themselves or, or perhaps with someone else to do that. So the Nicanor Gate, even though it was called a beautiful gate, was probably not the gate they were talking about. Now there was even a more beautiful gate that was there. It was called the Corinthian Gate. The Corinthian gate was also located inside the temple, not inside the temple, but inside the temple walls, um, not the temple proper. But the, but the Corinthian gate was, again, very inaccessible to most people, and especially someone who had been uh, physically impaired. Uh, he would have had to been carried inside a fairly good distance and up some steps and so forth, which would have made it, again, very difficult. Now, the Corinthian gate was... Uh, you may have seen a picture of the Corinthian gate at some point in time, but it was, a, it was a humongous gate. It took 20 men, 20 grown men, to open and close the doors of the Corinthian gate. So it was a very imposing, very beautiful gate. Now, but because of its inaccessibility to a person like uh, the lame man, uh, they think the Corinthian gate was probably not the beautiful gate that we're referring to. Now, the third one, it was called the Shushan Gate, it was located on the eastern wall of the, of the, of the uh, uh, access to the inside the temple. It really was not in the temple itself or, or even wasn't on the temple grounds. It was on the eastern wall that surrounded the temple. And so it probably was placed at the best location uh, for someone to bring him there each day, deposit him at the gate, they could leave and he could stay there all day and they would come back and, and pick him up. So the Shushan Gate was probably the gate that was referred to in our text called the Beautiful Gate. Anyway, now, Peter and John stop, say, require him to look at them in the eyes as they tell him that they don't have silver and gold, but they do have something even more valuable than that. They have the power to heal him from his lame, lame uh, condition. And so they do, in fact, speak words of, of healing to him. He gets up. And, of course, as the scripture says here over in verse 
uh, 8 and 9, uh, he was le- he, he, so he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. I'm sure it was quite a sight. Uh, I, I, probably Peter and John were a little taken back by the exuberance and he probably was holding on to them and dancing around and pulling them along as he wanted them to go on inside the temple area into this place called Solomon's Portico, which is where just about everybody gathered. It was a long covered walkway that was a, probably um, 300 meters long or something like that. Uh, but that's where everybody gathered before the prayers began, before they went inside and they gathered there so they could talk and, and, and uh, fellowship. So. They got inside, quite a stir occurred, and then Peter, once the, the stir is, is, is created and it was chaotic around him and everybody was asking, uh, in verse 12 he says, so when Peter saw it, he, and, and saw it meaning the, the chaos around the people and the excitement and of course their, their amazement that this is a guy they passed by every day probably for years and years and years and knew the condition that he was in, but at the time he was healed fully healed, not only uh, fully healed and his legs had, had gained strength, but here he was dancing around and running around and praising God. So when Peter saw it, verse 12, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And he killed the prince of life whom God had raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you. So Peter is saying, hey, you know, let, let me get this straight. He and I had nothing to do with this other than pronouncing the words. We spoke the words, but we spoke the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in doing that. And then he begins immediately to make the same accusation that he made in the first sermon that he gave. Verse 12 through 16, he begins to talk to them and con- accuse them very directly about what they had done to this man under whose authority the healing had taken place. And so the, the, the people who were gathered there could not deny that a miracle had happened. And Peter was attributing the power of that miracle to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ whom they had killed, the Prince of Life. You kill the Prince of Life. He was also in, in Isaiah was called the, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53, 11. In 53.11, he says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall, no, that's, that's a wrong one. Uh, wrong page here. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so that's, that's who Peter was talking about. The, 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 the same person that Isaiah had talked about as being the servant of the Lord, he also talked about him being the prince of life as, as, as quite a contradiction to what they had, how they had treated him. Here was a person who was the, 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 uh, the epitome of, of a template of the perfect human person, or a perfect humanity, if you will. And you had taken him, this man who, who was uh, the prince of life, and you had killed him. You had murdered him. And he goes on to continue in that, that same uh, mode of accusing them. He talked about Israel rejecting and killing him that God raised him from the dead. He was witnessed by over 500 people. And now you also, 
meaning that not only was, was Jesus, once he was resurrected and he came up from the grave in, the, the, in that 40-day 40 40 time period after he was resurrected, he was seen by over 500 people. And now he's saying, now you also have seen him or you have seen the authority of him in, the, in what we've been able to do in terms of uh, this healing. We did not do it. It was the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. Goes on in Acts 17, I mean Acts 3 in the 17th verse. He says, and yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord, and, he, and that he might send Jesus, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a people like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away from everyone, every one of you from your iniquities. And so Peter is, is sort of bringing that, his exhortation, his sermon, to a close here with that accusation of all that they did. And then he begins to tell them, now, these are all the things that you did, but there still is a way for you. you. You can be restored, you can be redeemed, but there is a particular process by which that's going to happen. First of all, there is an individual and a collective debt that you owe, a collective guilt that you owe. And the only way that that collective guilt is going to be assuaged is only, it's going to, and the only way you're going to be redeemed is if the Jewish people must repent. You must, if you repent, meaning that you have got to accept the Messiah which was, which was in your presence, whom you rejected, there, there is no other way. That you, are, you must accept him as your Messiah, and if you accept him as your Messiah, you will gain not only forgiveness and the opportunity for eternal life, but you will also, what he's referred to here, is these times of refreshing. And I'll read that scripture in just a minute uh, and talk about what he's talking about there. And then, of course, the, the other thing is, is that once the Jews have accepted Christ as the Messiah, there will be this return of Jesus and the restoration of all things in Isaiah. Now, there, there is a, there's a lot of controversy and always has been about those verses and what those verses mean and how they've been interpreted in the, uh, within the body. Uh, I, I would hesitate to call them sort of the, the proof text for dispensationalism, but it certainly was, would be one of the proof texts for dispensationalism. And the dispensational, that, that, uh, the aspect of dispensationalism that I'm talking about is that part where uh, people who say that, the, that God is going to deal with the Gentiles and he's going to finish dealing with the Gentiles in terms of the gospel message and their redemption and ultimately their salvation. And after he's done with the Gentiles, then he's going to deal 
with the Jewish people. Now, uh, I, I'm not an expert on dispensationalism, but I, <laughs> I, I, I can read the scripture. And what the scripture tells me is that that is not at all uh, what's being talked about here. This is not, that's not what Peter is talking about here. And it should, it should give anyone who believes that, that there is going to be a, a different code or a different uh, uh, a protocol, if you will, for salvation of the Jews, uh, needs to, maybe, maybe they need to rethink that. Because that's, that's, not, that's not what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is that Jewish people must repent. They must accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah to the Jews. The Messiah that was sent, was identified, proclaimed himself, shown all the manifestations of who he was, and then, at, and even then, was rejected by many. Not all. There were some who, who accepted him, but, but many, the majority of the Jews did not accept him. And the only way that they're going to... to, to obtain eternal life. The only way that they're going to obtain salvation is to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way. There's only one name under heaven by which men may be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what Peter is trying to tell them here in, in very, I, I think, are pretty explicit terms. Now, these things here, the forgiveness, uh, that, that's rather straightforward. Uh, you know, if you accept Christ, just like the Gentiles, just like all of us, uh, we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as a, on a profession of faith and what he did on Calvary, the shed blood of Christ, whose, whose uh, blood was the propitiation of our sins, and it covered us, uh, and, and we have been restored in our relationship to God, and we have been forgiven. And our sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And so that's, that's one. You're going to be forgiven. Your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to attain eternal life because of it. You will be saved. Once you are saved, there's going to be this thing that Ezekiel talked about in chapter 37, verses 21 through 28. That really is, is talks about... Um, here they're talking about the millennial kingdom here. What verses did I say? 21 through 28. This is, this is uh, the prophet. He says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. And all they, they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into kingdoms again. And they shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have, been sin which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. And then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then he talks about, uh, it goes on in 20, verse 24, and says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall all walk in my judgments and observe my statutes, and so forth. And it goes on down to the 28th verse, and I'm not going to read all of that, but this times of refreshing that, that uh, Peter is talking about here, he's taking from Ezekiel 37 about this messianic kingdom that's going to be established when the Jews come back to God or come back to and accept Christ as the Messiah. 
It's this messianic kingdom that's going to be established. And of course, once the Jews have accepted Christ, then ultimately uh, there's going to be a return of Jesus. Now, that's, that's actually is, is no different than the, the exactly the same gospel that you and I listen to and the way in we look at the end times and things that are going to take place. Uh, and so what, what Peter is doing is, is uh, again, just telling the Jews that they're not going to be any different than the Gentiles. That, uh, let me go back over to that verse, and I want to read that again. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people, just like you and I, those people who are not called by God, uh, who have been blinded to the truth of His Word, and who have not accepted the Messiah, uh, have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And yes, and all the prophets from Samuel, and, and he goes on in verse 24 to talk about, you, you of all people, the Jews of all people should understand this, because you've had all of the prophets from the beginning of Moses through Abraham and through uh, all of the other prophets have, have gone through this, that's a part of the, your, the teaching that has been given to you from the time you've been born. Why didn't you, why didn't you understand? Why didn't you recognize your, the Messiah when he came? I mean, not only did he come, but he came to you first. He came to his people first in fulfillment of his own uh, promise is that uh, to the Jew first. To you first, God having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. He came for you. You rejected him. And because you rejected him, he blinded you until he goes. And then every Gentile has had that opportunity uh, again to hear the gospel and, so, and, and to respond to that gospel. Once all of the Gentiles have heard that gospel, and of course the gospel is still accessible to you, and so, once the last of the Gentiles have heard that gospel, uh, then the end times or the, the end will come. There's not going to be a time out, okay, now I'm going to go back and deal with the Jews now. Uh, it's, it's going to, that will be it. So, the Jews have the same opportunity as the Gentiles in hearing the word of God, hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and coming to, buy, to him in faith uh, and acceptance of the Messiah. And after that is over with, and he says, after that time has come, after the last Gentile has been saved, uh, then there will be a restoration of all things. The end, end will come, and then there will be a restoration of all things. In the 11th chapter of Isaiah, in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, the first 12 verses, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it, it foretells not only the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of those 12 verses there, uh, it talks about what's going to happen in this messianic kingdom once the, the, uh, uh, the world has been restored back to its original and you'll remember those verses, starting over about verse 6, about the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fat, fatling will, will lie together, and the little child shall lead them. Those are all things that when we hear those verses, we think about the, the new heaven and the new earth, the restoration of all things, just like 
the Garden of Eden. And so that's what Peter is trying to tell them here. That's, that's the protocol. And, he, and again, he, he reiterates it. You've you had the opportunity through Moses and the Messianic prophecies, the Abrahamic covenant. All of those things were given to you and, ha, and have been yours from the beginning, and you should have known. And, and the fact is, is some did. There's always been a remnant that they call that threat, the thin red line of those who have always had faith in, in, uh, in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 11, I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes here before I, I finish up talking about Romans 11, 25 and 26. These are two very, very powerful verses because again, they, talk, they speak directly to the Jews and what the Jews, how they're going to be treated uh, around salvation. Verse 25 in the 11th chapter of Romans says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, of course, remember the audience here. There's Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he's trying to, I guess, give them an idea not only about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also talking about the Jews. And, of course, there was always this idea on, the, on those that were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and those that were Jews and maybe were not yet believers or perhaps were thinking about being believers or in some way had, had made over tours to, to become believers. And so he's telling the Gentiles there, the Romans, I, I don't desire that you're ignorant about the mystery, you know, about the mystery of the Jews, lest you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. So he says, don't, don't try and outthink this thing. Don't, don't, you know, tr don't, don't look at what has happened here and think somehow that God has abandoned the Jews. He has not. He said that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has blinded the eyes of the non-believers in, in Israel, the Jews, just, just like God has blinded the eyes of many Gentiles. You know, the, it's, it's those who have not been called by God. It's, in God's grand design, there are people who are going to be called and there are people who are never going to be called. Uh, and the same thing holds true for the Jews. There are people who will be called from the Jewish community and there will be Jews that will not be called. And so that's what he's talking about here. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Once the, the fullness, meaning after all Gentiles have been preached to and the gospel has been carried to the, Jew, the Gentiles and the last one has been saved. That, verse 26, and it says, And so all Israel will be saved as is written. Now, one of the things that happens, and some commentators would call it violence to the Word of God, is that they would change the word so, which, which means in this manner. Uh, that, that, that's just a, a word that sort of uh, means, has, has a meaning. And it says, and so this, it means in this manner. And so in this manner, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Meaning that, of course, all the Jews will be saved exactly like the Gentiles will be saved. And that is, there must be a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ based upon what He did for them on the cross. And He goes on then in verse 26 and reads, It says, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. And, of course, that's, that is exactly what 
the, the message that Peter wanted to preach that day about uh, uh, what salvation is going to be like. There, again, there are many people, especially dispensationalists, who said that Peter was offering a different, a, a, a sort of a different road to salvation for the Jews than he did the Gentiles. But that's not at all true. That's not what the scriptures say. The deliverance of the Jews is now on them, and meaning that uh, you know the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. They must accept the gospel. They must, in fact, profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ based upon what he did as the Messiah and his sacrifice on the cross, the shed blood. Now, I'm, I'm sure I'm running out of time, uh, so let me just conclude very quickly here by saying that this was not another offer to the Jews. Uh, Peter was giving, if you will, the prerequisites for redemption to the Jews. That's who he was talking to that day. And so as he, he first he makes the accusation about their, their individual and collective guilt about what they did to the Messiah, even after they should have known what they were doing and who they were doing it to, they should have known that, but they were obviously their eyes had been blinded and they did not know that or they did not act on what they knew, and so they allowed him to be murdered. Now, because they allowed that to happen and they have the guilt for that, then they, what God has done is said that now they will be judged just like the Gentiles will be judged and their path to salvation is just like the path to salvation for the Gentiles. All right. So next week we'll be talking about, uh, again in Acts, this time we're going to be in chapter 4, which will be week number 5, I believe. And so I look forward to that and I hope that you do too. Let me close with prayer. Gracious Father, I do thank you again for the time. Uh, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We just ask that you would be with us uh, for the remainder of this week, uh, for our services on Sunday, and we just glorify you in all, that, all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.